You are listening to Savage Wonder, a podcast about warriors and artists. It's long-form one-on-one conversations with veterans in the arts. This show is produced by the Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a creative hub for talented veterans and world-class performers to create compelling live theater and events. My guest this week was Lindsay Partain, who I just uh, adore as a writer. I was, she first came to our attention or my attention, I guess, when we uh, opened up our inaugural playwriting competition at Vet Rep and she sent submission after submission after submission. <clears throat> I thought, who the hell is this chick that's sending me 20 submissions? I'm joking. It was not 20 submissions, but um, I kept seeing her name pop up. And when I started to read the plays this past January, uh, she honestly didn't need to put her name on any of them after I'd read the first one. Her voice is incredible. Her voice is completely unique. There is, I mean, you know, I don't want to be uh, completely empirical about this, but, you know, I mean, I read about 190 plays, and I think it's safe to say nobody, nobody is writing in the style that she writes in. Nobody is writing with uh, the atmospherics that she writes with. Lindsay's writing is an incredibly unique mixture, especially for theater. Uh, it straddles the line between horror and fantasy, but with like a left hook to the soul. It's not gore porn by any stretch. It's um, emotionally rooted horror or fantasy with strong, it's, I feel like I'm describing a wine, um, but, but it's like with strong overtones of loneliness, grief, isolation, um, loss, claustrophobia i um it's it, it which i'm not saying this to bum you out or to give you a sense that it's all of her work is 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 depressing it is um captivating and haunting and memorable and moving and that's i think what makes it uh exceptional <clears throat> she is a prolific writer and has been a prolific writer in multiple forms for a very long time uh but her playwriting is incredibly unique. And I, I guess it's a long way of saying that when I finally whittled uh, the play, the 10-minute plays down to the top 10, uh, I was very torn about which one of Lindsay's plays to put in the top 10. Uh, they were all exceptional pieces of work. And um, the one I did, Cookie Cutter Christmas, was um, very haunting, moving. It teared me up. Um, which is hard to do in 10 pages. Um, but I, I think uh, I can safely say, I believe it made me cry, if I remember right. It was just haunting and moving and, and um, not so much, in, it wasn't, uh, uh, it was more on the fantasy side or uh, magical realism side, let's say, than, uh, than the horror side. But it was uh, just an incredibly moving piece of work, which I found to be a consistent thread through all of her pieces. I'm very excited to see what Lindsay continues to do and how her career unfolds. I just think she's a very promising writer. Uh, and I, again, as I say, I just don't know anyone that has that voice. Um, so the writing that she's doing, I think, is, um, is really outstanding. I'm trying to think if there's anything else you guys need to know to fully appreciate this episode. We talk a lot about Portland and about the culture of Oregon, uh, which I think plays a not insignificant factor 
in her writing. Um, yeah, I won't give any spoilers about uh, what we talk about or, or uh, put out any answers to the question I had here. But um, but you'll you'll hear through the episode uh, her thoughts, her feelings about uh, the environment, about her life experiences. She is a, a both a military daughter and granddaughter uh, and niece. Um, she also attempted to enlist in the Navy, and we'll talk about that as well and what that experience was like for her. So just a great conversation, and I can't wait to see what else is going to happen with her. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this. I'm Christopher Palmeyer. I'm the Artistic Director at Veterans Repertory Theater, and this is The Savage Wonder of Lindsay Partain. Hey, Lindsay. Welcome to the show. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so glad we can talk. So I feel like um, I probably messed up talking to you before we did the show because it's like I have a little bit of insight into you and I've complimented <laughs> the hell out of your work already. So I'm like, ah, oh, God, now I've got to repeat it <laughs> and like find my sincerity again and, and get back into it. But, uh, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> it's like, oh, oh wait, no. wait, how did I say that before? It was really eloquent before. What was the, what did I, how did I phrase it? <laughs> hey, where are you? Are you in Portland right now? Is that where you are? I am. Yeah. So okay. I'm based out of Portland, Oregon. Are you from there originally? I am. Yeah. My, my family's been here since like the, early 1900s. So I'm, I'm one of those where I, I got to graduate from the same high school. My great grandfather did. So holy crap. And in yeah. Portland itself, like not Oregon writ large, but actually in Portland. Uh, so they, my family is mostly based out of a small dairy town out towards the coast. Okay. Um, yeah. Just like outside of Hillsborough area. So, and I am like just outside of Portland. Um, okay. Yeah. Is it considered the suburbs of Portland? Basically, yeah, more or less. I don't know Portland that well, so yeah, it's funny. My mom was actually small city, so (laughs) it's it's weird. My mom was born in Portland, but oh no way! But but they were literally so her her dad, my grandfather, was in radio, and um, he was Mexican. He was he was in California, and then he chased radio all across the country. So he went from California up to Portland, where my mom was born then to Chicago where my aunt was born. And then they ended up in New York where the work was. So it was like, he did this big like loop coming over, but that's like the only experience. So cool. That's the only thing I know about Portland is mom was born there, spent 10 minutes there and then they moved on. But you know, so it's funny. I have this like connection with Portland, but I have no feel for it. Um, what is it considered? Like, uh, is it a big move for you to move from the suburbs into Portland? Is it like, Oh, wow. You're in the city now. You're a big city girl. Like what, what was that considered in Oregon terms? Yeah. I'm trying to think of the, I've, is it, so is it a big move to like, to move from like one part of the state to the other or. Yeah. And I guess also in people's perception, like what does it mean to an Oregonian? If that's the right word. What, what does it mean to somebody where it's like, Oh, you were over here and now you're in Portland itself. So like there, that's the, archetypal city of Oregon, I guess. So okay. Like, wait, like, is that, is that a thing? Is that like, oh, you're a Portlander and that's very different than if you live in the rest of Oregon? I, I think so, actually. I think there's this, um, I mean, I think everybody and their cousin has probably seen Portlandia at least a little bit right. or like knows about it. So I think right. that you get these like 
stereotypical, quote unquote, stereotypical Portlanders. <laughs> um, but I've got a lot of friends who still like live out in timber and banding and out in these like little pockets of communities in the like outside of Portland. And I've I know that there's a little they get a little grumbly when people treat the uh, the outskirts, I guess, of Portland like Portland's backyard. It's like, no, this is actually our our home. Uh, it's Got not your you. backyard. <laughs> don't you. leave your don't leave your uh, sports equipment out here, please. <laughs> this is mine. <laughs> um, but I think as far as like the moving part of it, I, I think that for the most part, any person who has to drive in Oregon is going to be a little like it's going to be a hassle. <laughs> They're like, I have to drive there. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. That, that's my, I mean, again, correct me if I'm wrong, because I really don't know what I'm talking about. No, you're good. I'm, I'm just, I'm just positing things that I've heard or picked up, but is there a, um, is there a sense that uh, Portland, Oregon as a state is almost this, I, I always feel like it's an idyllic escape. I know I, it's weird. A bunch of people I went to high school with in Missouri ended up going to Oregon and I feel mm-hmm. like they just kind of rooted there. And it was like this idyllic life. And they're like, yeah, this is it. So I don't travel. I don't go anywhere. I'm building my <laughs> utopia right here. And I'm not planning on leaving. Is that mm-hmm. kind of true for Oregon? Or am I, is that just anecdotal on my part? I think that, I think it can be true in a couple of ways. I think it, like, oh gosh, how do I phrase it? Like, I think that for a lot of folks who have maybe lived here for a long time. I, I don't, I, I think that we, there's like a want for it to be like more idyllic or for it to be all of the things that people who don't live here think that it, that huh. it is or should be. Yeah. And then the people who move here from like other States are like, Oh, like no sales tax. Like people are so friendly. And, uh, but why is there so much rain? And, <laughs> and, uh, and then, yeah, you've got the folks who have just lived here forever and, you know, you still want, you still hear uh, the people who are upset because they want to see like more change, more progress, more of something. Like, I think that the standards uh, from the outside um, or the the I, I, ideal version of Portland from like outside perspective is pretty high. And in mm. reality, it's like, I don't, it kind of feels just like a pretty normal, <laughs> pretty normal little city. Um, just, yeah, like I said, with no sales tax and maybe more bikers, <laughs> uh, bicyclists. Yeah. It's strange. I mean, I feel like the reason I'm, I'm kind of dwelling on it is, um, yeah. as I'm kind of taking the scenic route to talk about your work mm. and it, and the reason I'm, I'm kind of dwelling on the setting is uh, a couple weeks ago when I was talking to Philip Kennedy Johnson, who's writing mm. the Superman comics and, and all that stuff. And he talked about how so uh, over 50 per, I mean, this is his estimation obviously it's not empirical evidence but he said mm. you know like over half of the people writing comic books are all in portland yeah we've got dark and, horse comics out here yeah and i was mm-hmm. like it, it made me think what is it about portland specifically maybe in oregon maybe a little bit more that mm. um makes people's it, it seems like fantasy <clears throat> has a has a home there like there's people yeah. that are writing stuff and you're writing at least the writing that I've seen of yours and I've yeah. seen a lot but I know you've written tons more but it it has a fantastical element mm-hmm. am I reading too much into this is, but is there no, some I, reason it's it's rooted there in Oregon <laughs> all you Oregonians are coming up with these kind of stories 
I, so, you know, a couple of years ago, I had started a, a sort of, uh, an online arts magazine with a friend and a couple of friends. And a big part of why we did that was because we, we all had this sense that people from the Pacific Northwest. So even just like the Pacific coastline, there was a different, there, there was a different style of writing the way Mm. that people from the Pacific Northwest tend to write just it it sounds different it feels different the words that they're using like it's usually like more earthy more uh um they they it's like they're pulling magic from nature and from the world around them and this like combination with that sort of um natural I I don't know natural magic I guess if you yeah uh, yeah. with like their uh with their feelings and with the way that like it makes them emote um and because we are such a you know a beautiful like uh green and like luscious state I guess. Yeah, yeah like there's so much to see uh and especially if you do like the outdoors like if you like to travel around and like you can still see lighthouses and you can still like mm. go to these big, beautiful gardens. And it's a place where you're sort of, I don't know, there's a lot of opportunity to explore, but also like explore yourself in those places. It's very, I don't know. It feels like a rich combination of like ethereal with also just um, space to try and figure yourself out. Maybe. That's interesting. And it's interesting, especially when I'm thinking of like this, the East coast writer stereotype, the New Yorker living <laughs> in a small apartment, rubbing shoulders with 800 different people, yeah. and different kinds of people every day on the subway, you know? Um, and I'm wondering uh, to suddenly shift into a very granular subject. How does that affect your dialogue? Um, is there a sense mm. of like, Hey, I, how do I, I need to get the scent of speech again and like how different kinds of people are going to interact and what that conversation is going to look like versus a New Yorker where maybe the dialogue comes because you're just remembering stuff you heard on the subway. You can eavesdrop so easily. You know, is there still that dynamic? Do you still, um, I don't know. I mean, how, am I, I again, so. am I speculating or yeah, I don't, I don't think you are. I think that, so for me personally, actually one of my favorite things that I used to go out and do and this is going to be creepy. I'm um, whatever. Um, one of my favorite things right that place. I used to go out right. and do was um, I would love to go to like the mall or I would go and hang out like at a cafe or at a dive bar somewhere. And I would just listen mm. to people like yep. and eavesdrop on people. And I would like, you know, if I would hear like an interesting sentence or something, I would, I would like write it down on my phone. And I had some really fun like interactions, but it's also a really good, um, a good way to train your ear for how people actually speak to each other in real time. And I don't know. I think that at this point, like Portland itself, like Portland Metro area, we're such a a melting pot of like different people from all Mm -hmm. over. Like if you're actually like born and raised in Oregon, that's kind of like a a niche spot at this point. Like sometimes. Um, So it, it feels very, um, I don't know. Like you have a lot of options and, yeah. Um, a lot of options to choose from a lot of different ways that people, uh, phrase their, their sentences even, or, uh, different vocabulary that they bring to the table. It's really fun. Um, I do feel like when you do, uh, when, oh gosh, I'm trying, I don't want to be, I, I mean this like in the nicest way possible. 
Oregonian, uh, nicest way possible. Um, I think that sometimes when I'm writing Oregonians <laughs> or when I'm writing about like people that I know, um, there tends to be this sort of, um, like a passive aggressive niceness. Mm -hmm. Um, I think like that's, that tends to be sort of like the vibe <laughs> when there's conflict, it's like, it's a little passive aggressive, but also I don't want to be mean. I don't want to, I don't want to step on toes, but I still want to. <laughs> Why is that? Are you, do you oh, have, have no a love hate relationship with, with the area or is it love? And just, that's no. how the words come out. I think it's just how the words come out. Interesting. I, yeah. No, Interesting. I love it here. This is the only place that I ever really want to live. I, I have, I lived in Arizona for a short stint and, and that was fine. It was very warm, but it was fine. Um, and I've been in larger cities and it just stresses me out. <laughs> Interesting. Now, like it is beautiful here. The people, um, the communities here are really lovely to each other. Um, I think that there's a lot of room to uh, explore your creative endeavors in Portland. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I can't imagine myself being anywhere else. I do love it here. And I do like, and again, like I say it with like all the love in my heart, like that passive aggressiveness. Like I do think that at the core of it, there is this, like this, this need, this want, this desire to always be a neighbor in some sense of the word. It's like, no, I still want to be kind, even if it sort of puts me like a little out sometimes. And like, I'm going to be a little, maybe a little grumpy about it, but I'll get over it because it was helping somebody. Interesting. So why did you, move I hope to that Portland? makes sense. No, it totally moves. To, it totally makes sense. Why did you move to Portland? Was that always in your mind to move to Portland itself? Or did you, was that a major inflection point that like, Hey, I'm, I, I need to go into the city. I need to, be in a more claustrophobic I, environment. <laughs> <laughs> I, so I'm still living, like, like I said, like I'm just outside of like actual like Portland, yeah, yeah, Portland. Yeah. So sure. um, I think that for me, I, I wanted to live in a place where like, you know, it's still relatively quiet, still like, you know, pretty like within like walking distance to like a park or something, but mm. I don't want to drive. 40 minutes to get to a Trader Joe's or to like my local bank, you know, it's like, yeah. it's just yeah. where I grew up. It's just too far away from like the convenience level is just not it, not where it's at. So I, gotcha. a lot of it was for convenience, but also too, like where my folks live, they like the Wi-Fi that we had forever was on one of these like cruddy little like USB ports that you had to stick in. Like wow. it was like the next level up from dial up. It was yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. just trying to be a student or trying to work anywhere. Right. Right. <laughs> it just made it next to impossible. So sure. I also just, I like it out here a little bit more. There just seems to be a little bit more to do. So that's fair. No, that's totally fair. When did you start writing? Was this a childhood thing? Did this start very early for you? It, so writing in general, yeah, when I was in, I still remember like being maybe kindergarten like ish, like I loved writing like these little tiny short stories. And I, I think there was one where it was like this. Um, I remember I had a short story about these adventures that this like a, a robin and like it's these other like outdoorsy animals would go on together. Um, it was like a robin, a squirrel, and I think maybe a hedgehog or something like that. I don't know. But um but I had a little story about that. And then when I was in middle school for a while, I had, I was writing about this 
sort of actually it's kind of a stranger thing story which is a little annoying now that I wow think about it. really but there was this like uh alternate like this mirror universe uh below this uh willow tree and like there was this whole like mythology around like if you step under the shadow of the willow tree then you get like taken down into this like mirror place that's ruled by an evil queen and wow. um wow. so i wrote about that stuff when I was younger. I wanted to write novels and short stories and all of that, but um I could never finish anything. <laughs> so yeah. Um and my dialogue was not great. It was not where it needed to be, especially for longer uh like books. So when I went to college in 20, I think I started 2013. So like 2014, 2015 was my first playwriting class. I took it because I sucked at dialogue and oh. I wanted to get better at dialogue yeah. for my books. And I was like, Oh no, this is, this is my home. <laughs> I, I think I figured out what I'm supposed to be doing. <laughs> so. What, what bit you about playwriting? What, what was the attraction besides getting your dialogue better? I, Oh, that's such a good question. And I don't, I don't know that I have a great answer for you, honestly. I think that I, I think it, a lot of it was just being asked to step outside of my comfort zone to write for something that up until college, I didn't even know was an option. I wasn't mm-hmm. involved in the theater whatsoever up until that point. I think I maybe seemed like I saw The Hobbit when I was in elementary school. I feel like at our local community theater. Uh, but that was it. Like I didn't consider playwriting or theater at all. So I think there was this world of possibility inside of playwriting where, um, I don't know where I was allowed to go into and uh, explore, I guess. Yeah. Where I was allowed to explore, uh, like small town magic. And a big part of that was one of the first shows I saw when I was in college was Our Town. And I don't know, something about like this magical play about these very ordinary, uh, you know, boring, <laughs> like this yeah, like boring yeah, little town, yeah. but it still has their magic and they still matter. And I was like, I know all of these people. These are my stories too. I have a place here um, where I don't know that I felt like, at least at that time, I didn't feel like I really had a place or I would have had to fight a lot harder (laughs) to get noticed if I did stick with uh, the book route. Can you just talk a little bit about the transition between Mm -hmm. being a novelist and a playwright? What what were the pros and cons? What What did you have to jettison? What did you have to take on to make that transition? I... I've never been asked this question before. Oh my gosh. So I've, let me think. I, I really had to. So if you look at my plays and I know that you have, I like stage directions. I like them a lot. Um, when I was starting out, I had to really learn to let go of some of those. So if you think there's a lot of them now, oh boy. Uh, early drafts of some of those first shows were a a disaster (laughs) because I was trying really hard to like fit the two together, make both happen. Um, so I had to let some of those go and, um, but it also forced me to 
world build within dialogue. Um, this is Lima Bean, my cat. She will be in and out for a little while. Um, <laughs> um, Force me to world build through dialogue. Um, I think that a big pro was it really allowed me to character build in ways that I didn't know were that I didn't know how to do yet as sure. a young writer um, who hadn't like taken classes or like really studied, I guess, about writing. I was fair, I was always self-taught. So maybe I just didn't have the tools to do it, but uh playwriting always felt very natural to me where um in a lot even now like I still get like when I get an idea it's always felt like I see I see this idea on stage or I see ways to like make it happen on stage Mm. um and novels it always felt like I had to trying to eat the hash brown it's not gonna happen (laughs) um where it's like novels and these I, I felt like I was fighting to make them happen and to come alive or to make sense and yeah it just everything felt a lot more um inherent I guess when I started mm. writing for theater when you say you were having trouble finishing your novels were did you Never. outline were you what, what, like, what was what where how did you paint yourself into a corner uh was it was it that you weren't outlining and so it kind of the story just ends up running into a dead end or did you find that you got tired of the characters or what was it usually that was holding you up I just got, I would get stuck. I, cause I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to make people talk to each other in books or like how that format looked or, um, yeah, that, that was a big part of it. I would just get stuck, uh, hung up on these, on these weird roadblocks about like where it was appropriate or like how to make people talk to each other, uh, within books. Um, but if it's a play, you kind of have to, so right. <laughs> that's all they're doing. So I felt like I was just taking out like the hardest part of writing a book. <laughs> yeah. It's weird. Yeah. You definitely didn't run away from what was tripping you up. You kind of like embraced it and then I just leaned in. targeted it. Yeah, you totally leaned into it. Yeah. Um, I mean, did you, did you miss or did you chafe at the lack of control that you kind of have to give up the fact that there was going to be a collaboration that people were going to come in start putting their vision on it, their own spin on it. Was that a, a pro or a con for you or an adjustment? I love it. Honestly, like I've never, I was actually just talking to somebody about this yesterday. I, I'm not that precious with my work when it's, mm. when it's done and I send it somewhere, like if a director wants to do it, I'm like, have a blast, go for it. <laughs> Tell me how it goes. Um, I, it's like, I have, I've created a story and I have, created these characters I have done my part like I am not a director uh I am a very occasional actress um and anymore not that much uh so I'm just not my brain isn't uh my brain is not geared to think in those ways so they're going to pick up on things that I was never going to see like I yeah so I just step back yeah (laughs) no no do the things that they're professionals at do you miss world building as a novelist where you have complete unilateral control to be as imaginative and wild as you want in the conception of that world or because your plays are very imaginative in general. I mean, you're building, you know, I don't think any two of your plays were in the same world. They all had 
different rules, different <laughs> features. I mean, there's like, there's kind of a, almost a sci-fi base to all of them, not because of the science fiction part, but just because of the world building. It's like, there's mm-hmm. a different set, a different reality for almost each one of your plays, which is incredible. As I told you before, when we talked, I, I, do, I don't know anybody that is writing in the space that you're writing in. I haven't seen anyone else write in that space. It, and it's kind of toes the line between horror. And I'm saying this, not just to regurgitate to you, but also for everybody listening. Like, I think <laughs> what strikes me about Lindsay's work is just that it, it is, um, it, it crosses that line between horror fantasy and you don't just don't see plays in that space very much. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's incredibly imaginative because it is world building, but I have to imagine if you were that kind of novelist, that's a, that's a big gear shift where you have complete mm-hmm. unilateral control to build out that world and explain it and, you know, fill in the colors and everything and all that. Was there a transition or did it not really bother you that much? Was it an easy process? It really didn't bother me that much mm. to tell you the truth. I, and maybe I actually, like, as you were talking about, like just sci-fi in general, I feel like when you, when you sit down to read like a sci-fi or a fantasy novel, there are, you have somebody who has really leaned in to explaining the rules of the world. And something that I really love about magical realism and sci-fi like on stage is that there's just not a lot of time for that. So it's just like you go in and you just, and you accept that, oh, this is the world that we're in. Cool. (laughs) Done. We're here. That's not the important thing here. Yeah. We're talking about all of this stuff. This is just the backdrop of the of the important thing. Um, and I feel like there is more of an expectation that you, and I don't know if it's like a because of Tolkien or if it's because of you know whoever, or, um, but there there feels like there is a um, this huge need, um, like it is expected of you to explain to the nth degree <laughs> like yep, how absolutely. how the magic works why it works why it's there where it came from and i'm like i don't want to write an anthology <laughs> I yeah just wanna, i just want to write stories about people and about absolutely. humans or or not so humans sometimes too but uh but humanity in general how much do you have the atmospherics developed in your mind so that you can leave it all out and not mention it because it feels like you already have that you're very, very clear on the world that you've built. And that's why it kind of works. You don't have to talk all about it or explain yourself because it's just very clear to you so mm-hmm. that it seems that you've already developed everything. Is that true? Or is it is it really um addition by subtraction that like, no, I I just don't pay attention to it and I can just write what I want to write and <laughs> every, I'll trust the reader to catch up. Um, you know, actually, can you, can you ask the question again in a different way? I don't think I quite understand. So I guess there's a, it seems to me there would be a difference between if you've sat back, imagined a certain kind of world, and then you just write scenes in that world without Mm -hmm. explaining the world versus going, Hey, um, I'm not going to think through that world. (laughs) All I know is that there's one or two attributes that I want to capture from that world. Like it's Mm -hmm. underwater or like it's in a confined space or something. And that's all I'm going to worry about. And then I'm just going to write the scene in there because the way that it reads as a reader reading it, I feel like there's a very fully developed world that you've already thought through there because I feel Mm -hmm. like if you haven't, 
there's going to, it's going to feel shallow. It's going to feel like there's, there's not depth there, but I don't know, maybe you're just gifted enough that you're just going, Hey, this one little idea is all I really need. And the reader it's in their reader's head. They're just imagining there's all this depth around them. So that's kind of what I'm asking. I think that for me, I, I do a little, I think I do a little bit of both. Like I give myself a little bit of grace. It's like, if I don't, I don't know. It's like, I am not an astronaut. I am not a scientist. There are things that I will never know about. (laughs) Never understand. So I, I do the, I do like, I do the work and I do like, I want to make sure that I am entertaining and like, um, bringing the world to life through my dialogue and through the interactions uh, with characters. So I do want to make the world in my head, um, come alive on stage through dialogue. And sometimes that's very tricky. Um, I think that in one of my newer full length plays called the light keepers, I do, uh, I do a little bit more of that where they're talking about like, how this alternate version of Oregon is different. Like we exist in a universe where like space is expanding at such a rate that, you know, there's only one star left in the sky. Mm. Um, and like, they talk about like, Oh yeah. The war that started like when uh, the, the war on satellites or like the war on technology where like all of the satellites fell from the sky. And it's like just a line. It's just like this little blip, but it gives you this idea of, the larger landscape that you're working with. Um, so I don't want to, you know, I don't want to like beat a dead horse about it. Like, and I don't want to get too like exposition sure. here, sure. you know, in that dialogue, cause I still want it to feel very, I want to give directors and actors and designers a lot of opportunity to explore the world that they want to build together. Mm-hmm. Um, and not impose too much of my own stuff. Cause I think that I've got like, I have like these sketches of, of what I could imagine happening on stage. But I think just about almost every single time I see somebody put my work on stage, I, it, it's so much more than I could have ever imagined it to be like, it's like yeah. somebody took the sketches and then they added color to it. And it just makes it that much better. So I don't know. Does that answer? That, that does. No, that, that, that does. Well, it actually makes me wonder what's your, what's your inspiration? What turns you on? What gets pen to paper and makes you start building a story then? Is it character? Is it a situation? Is it a world that you're trying to capture? What generally is your starting point? It's almost never a world point. I will say that I, you know, for a little while, it's, it's learning about people. Um, it, mm. it's, it's, I, so for cookie cutter Christmas, I had, I actually like that came from, I, I had a dream about this, um, like this young boy, you know, like teenage-ish boy and like just laying beside like a very like familial, like sweet moment, just like laying in bed next to his mother And that was, that was it. And I was like, okay, this is where this is coming from. And then I have another one uh, that also came from a dream where it was like, I just saw these, like, it was these two people together underwater. Um, So, 
And I think I ended up hearing a story about uh, like local mermaids who like ate children. And then that like also helped inspire some of that. But, <laughs> um, but I think it's a lot of it is it's stories and learning about people. And um, actually I was reading the introduction of uh, a Frankenstein earlier in the week and found myself like writing a monologue, <laughs> uh, wow. just wow. reading about Mary Shelley and about her life. Um, yeah. I guess let me dive into some of the stuff we talked about off air the other day, um, mm-hmm. because I'm really curious what the hell is it about you that the stories I was rereading your place. And I was like, why? And I don't know if this is me projecting it on there or if it's coming from you, but I, I have to think it's partly you because uh, otherwise I'd be like this with all the playwrights that I read, but there's that that sense of two things that I keep getting. Mm-hmm. Well, actually three claustrophobia, isolation, and a sense of loneliness. It doesn't mean they're all depressing or right. terrifying. <laughs> let, let me be clear, but, it, but I keep, there's, there's that sense of, and when I say isolation, it's almost this, um, let me think of the best way to put it. It's this sense of intimacy between your characters where they're constantly finding themselves in or not constantly, but often finding themselves in confined spaces where there's not um, where they have to sort out end of life issues, existential issues or something like that. And to me, I, maybe I interpret that in kind of an almost isolationist kind of headspace, like, Oh my God, that's it. And it, it, it showed, I kind of feel sort of claustrophobic with it in a good way, in a way that's moving because it, I feel like that kind of claustrophobia intensifies the emotions, the relationships and kind of gets, and, and then, and you're put, you always seem to put very high stakes on it. It often is life or death, but also the fact that it's existential. There's always something about existence and about the end of existence. Why are you there? Why is that in your headspace? And it's awesome. But I'm just curious why that seems to be an underlying current with your work. Um, I mean, to put it bluntly, I, I am chronically depressed. Okay. Um, yeah. I, I like my what was I? Um, I used to make this joke that like I like oh yeah, chronic major depression, and I major depression. Um, you know. Um, yeah. So like I and I've lived with that my entire life. I also like chronic anxiety, PTSD. Like I have like all of these lovely things yeah, that yeah, make yeah. me <laughs> into the writer I am. <laughs> um, but hey, the I'm second you're serious. cured, you're not writing anymore. I, I guess there's a trade-off there. Yeah, you know. <laughs> if only I could be. <laughs> Let's just <laughs> no. I I think that I write about those things because in a lot of ways for the for the majority, I would say, of my young adult life, I felt like those were the stakes. I was just like, I don't know if I'm going to live past 20. I don't know if I can do this. This is really hard. People are horrible. The world is horrible. I feel like, I don't know, just like your own feelings that you like put on yourself um, and your own self-worth. And um, I don't know. And just really living in that and 
knowing what it feels like to like, just knowing all of those feelings, like a little too intimately, um, and not really having a good outlet for like how to handle them, you know, outside of therapy, which also like, yeah, has helped immensely. Sure. <laughs> sure. Sure. Time. Sure. Um, but I, I, I write about existence and this feeling like you are being suffocated or this, uh, this claustrophobic feeling or feeling invisible even, or, Mm. um, I, I just, I know them pretty, pretty damn well. And they feel, um, I don't know. I feel like they're, they're stories that also need to be told. I, there are also, uh, I want more stories about women in particular, women and people identify as women who are grieving and who are like, who are traumatized or like, or who are in horror stories or who are like battling all of these things who are complicated and um, have it be told from, you know, a, a woman's perspective, I guess. Like, I don't want it to be about like, oh, well, she's not married or like having to, I don't know, like but something like tied mm. to mm. like those very like typical trophy things. It's like, I want it to be about something more than that. I want it to be more meaningful than that. Um, and I also just, I want to write awesome characters like that are meaningful for my actor friends. Like I want to write roles that are mm. exciting and beautiful uh, to, to hear and to, uh, to play with. <laughs> Um, for yeah, these yeah. for these women in my life because you know like there are only so many monologues that you can pull from Shakespeare you know, for women yeah, sure there sure, are sure. only so many monologues in the world that you can pull in general um and a lot of them are usually about about love or about relationships and I know that I do write a lot about love and relationships but mm-hmm. I try to do it in a way that feels um that feels like it means something, I guess, or does it feel so trivial? <laughs> yeah. And I, th- I think you definitely take the road less traveled, I think, to cover a lot of that. I mean, I'm thinking of um, uh, wherever you go, for mm. example. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, one that ones. one fucking kills me. Yeah. Um, as is cookie cutter Christmas on a slightly different way, but but there is something about that um, talk about isolation, separation, yeah. you know, uh, and all that. But um, but again, uh, I mean, that was a uh, a love and loss story in a way that I've never seen. Um, mm-hmm. That's and that's, I mean, you know, there's only so many stories ever told. But man, yeah. you're finding some different ways of telling some things and, and messaging things that we know. But it just it's a different vehicle. It's a different mechanism. Mm-hmm. Do you, um, this is, this is where my head goes. Let me see if I can actually <laughs> articulate what I'm thinking. Um, I know that, you know, I mean, obviously Brando was a great actor and, and, mm-hmm. you know, conjured up so many memorable roles. And I remember reading his biography or a biography about him and, and going, God, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, he went through stuff like people do, but it really wasn't that hard. There were a lot of self-inflicted injuries, you know, from mm. fame and whatever, but generally, I mean, just growing up, it wasn't an especially traumatic childhood. And I was like, how the hell did he know? How did he mm. know 
and how was he able to intuit what he did as an actor? And I, what I, the only thing I could decide is he was just sensitive. He was just a finely tuned instrument where every yeah. little microaggression or, or insult or anything made an imprint in a way that he could conjure back up artistically. Do you feel that for yourself? Did you need, um, I guess what, what I'm getting at is, were there major traumatic events in your life that you were like, yeah, I'm not going to be the same person after this? Or do you feel like you're a finely tuned instrument? You're an inherent artist where it's like, yeah, I'm going to pick up very subtle things that other people might miss. And that's what allows you to explore that artistically. You don't need to go to Syria to capture mm-hmm. loss and grief and all that. It's like, I can, I can see that just at Starbucks. I can walk into there and, and go, wow, let me pull this from here. Is that kind of, I don't know if I'm saying this well or articulately <laughs> enough. Does that kind of make sense? I think so. I, I really wish it was the second one. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh. Um, I, I think that it, it, a lot of what I'm Oh God, I don't want to dive too like deep into it just because it is like very deeply sure. personal. Sure, sure, sure. I got you. <laughs> and yeah, like and kind of depressing. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But like, I don't know. Trauma is um trauma is somebody I know, I guess. Yeah. Like yeah. yeah. So do you want to talk about your the yeah. end of your military career or the beginning and end of your military career, as it were? Was that part was of the hard. trauma? Or is there, it, you know, I dive into that. So much. Okay. Uh, that was a, that was a brief stint. So my, my family has been, so my father was, uh, in the Marines. So he was in desert storm. Mm-hmm. My grandfather was in the Navy and he was stationed over in Guam during Vietnam. Um, I think my other grandfather was also in the Navy. My aunt was in the Navy. Like it's been like all of these, uh, all of these big people. Uh, who have been and also my great grandfather was in the Army Air Corps in World War II, so mm-hmm. there was that. Mm-hmm. Um, I myself um, was I attempted to serve, so I was over in Great Lakes uh, for all of two months. I was about a week shy of being done with basic training, and my knee got all kinds of fucked up. Part of my mouth, uh, all kinds of fucked up, and they were like you're out. <laughs> like, what happened? do you want to sit in steps for, for yeah, a couple yeah, yeah. months while you heal up? Or do you want to go home? And I was like, this place is not good for my out. mental health. I'm out. <laughs> um, yeah, what happened to your knee? How'd you mess it up? I was, I was with a division of folks, I think, who we had a really hard time, like just listening together and taking uh, instructions. And there was a lot of like talking back. So because of that, uh, because of there, there were a lot of behavioral, um, con conflicting, I don't know, behaviors Mm -hmm. in, Mm -hmm. in that, uh, we also got IT'd a lot. (laughs) What's that? uh, That's a Navy term. What's IT'd? Uh, intensive training. So it's like, we would just be forced to to move and work out until mm-hmm. people were throwing up on the right. ground in our in our bunks and like that happened several times and I, I think we were doing mountain climbers or something and something and my knee just yeah tweaked and uh yeah and so I got to lay on the floor and write in everybody's personal record folder like personal record folders whatever you want to call it 
that we were getting IT'd again and that, uh, yeah, it was, that was embarrassing. Did was it? Good. Is that what it was? It was embarrassing. Is that it? I felt? did. I felt I was very embarrassed and I hated that I was, I think one of, they actually, like they brought in a new officer to train us at one point because we just like weren't getting it together. Um, and I remember sitting on the floor and she was yelling at them and she was just like, this is a good sailor. Like you hurt a good sailor with your behavior and me just being like, well, you just shut up. I don't know. <laughs> Stop looking at me. I feel like I already feel like on an emotional level, like I let people down. I feel like on a physical level, like my body has let me down. I wish I could disappear. And who, yeah. Who did you feel you let down? I, you know, I, going back to that moment, I was probably more myself than anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. I think it was just like, I think it was sort of an overwhelming sense of just shame, like general shame for not being able to do something uh, that I had signed up to do. Um, so just very unfortunate in a lot of ways. Why did you enlist? Why did you make that decision in the first place? I wanted to go to school and not be in a lot of debt. I wanted to be able to afford to go to college. Um, I had also, and this is annoying and embarrassing as well, but I had, I was seeing somebody at the time who really was pushing me to do it as well. Uh, So part of it was like, I can get school out of this. This is a way that I can like find education in my, on my own terms. Mm-hmm. Um, and also having this other person who really wanted to join and couldn't, uh, because of, I think the health reasons or something, but, um, was really like pushing me to do it, even though he couldn't. Uh, so there was also outside pressure to do it as well. Um, yeah, not why, the healthiest. <laughs> why did that matter so much to, to him to live vicariously through you or was what was the upside okay yeah i think that was probably part of it it was just living vicariously through me in some ways and i mean he ended up figuring out another way and i think joined the army a couple years later so it's like okay i it was an odd situation i think all of it boiled down to me just wanting to be lovable um Ah. so great lengths That, did, was, uh, that was before I went to therapy. So I would just like to clarify, I am better now. <laughs> Make better choices now. <laughs> what did it, what did it feel like to actually be shipping out for you? What did you been doing prior? Was it just oh, right after high school or what was what was going on for you before you joined? This, this was very shortly after high school. Yeah, I okay. think I was. Oh God, I think it was the year after uh, okay. after high school. Um I, I straight up passed out as soon as I got there. Like we were, I remember we were getting all of our gear and I was like, I don't feel so good. And I just remember like dropping to the floor, like my vision going black. Um, and I had been fine up until that moment. It just sort of like hit me all of a sudden. I was like, what are we doing? (laughs) I just straight up passed out. Um, so that was what was it? What, what was it? What was hitting you? Was it was it the being away from home? Was it 
just holy shit, what have I got myself into? What, what was hitting you at that moment? I think it was just a lot really, really fast. I also, and this is like, I should have thought about this maybe a little before. I was also really young and just not thinking things very, uh, not thinking things through very well. Um, I, I now know as an adult, I do not react very well when people scream at me. <laughs> so um, basic training for me. <laughs> Was, was kind of like oh god what do they call that it's um uh, when you are oh crap what is, what is that it's like, like the shark attack like the shark attack it, almost yeah, it's like yeah. oh you're afraid of fire we're gonna put you like next to a fire pit we're gonna right. put you in a fire pit and, like uh that's kind of what it felt like at some point so like there were some moments where um because prior to going into basic training i um I had been in some abusive relationships where yelling, go figure, was, you know, a really, you know, I will say like, and I don't mean this in a buzzwordy kind of way, but like it did trigger me to some extent. Uh, So there was one instance where one of my things, was it our, I think it was like our senior chief and he was just absolutely pissed and he went into his office and he started just like, kicking and like beating the shit out of this file cabinet that he had back uh in his office and we were all like supposed to be standing in front of our bunks and I just remember like I felt like I was sleepwalking and I just like moved I I left and I went into the bathroom and I just like sat in the bathroom and I could just like (laughs) dissociated for a minute um and I had to have some of my my crewmate crewmates I, I don't know um some of the people in my division came and got me and they were like if you don't get your ass back out of here it's going to be worse you have like they're going to make you that you will go to steps if you don't get your ass back out here they will mark you as a crazy person and you will never come back right, um, right. <laughs> so i did but yeah being if if uh if you don't do well when people yell at you i don't know <laughs> i would recommend it yeah uh, from personal experience um <laughs> So what did you, what did, your, what did your dad think when you enlisted? Was he in favor? Was he against it? Did he caution you? Like, what, what, what was that like? I honestly get, I don't remember. I don't really remember what my parents actually thought about it. No. I, oh God. I mean, I remember we had like a going away party and I remember them I just, I don't know. Our, my family, like in communicating, we communicate in very, um, our communication style when it comes to emotions and, and like feelings is, is kind of hard. It's a little limited. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's part of why I'm not mm. entirely sure. Um, had you I talked to your that... dad though about like his time in the Marine Corps or anything and, or to get any insight into the military life or anything like that? Not really. I, and now that you say it, like, I wish that I maybe had a little more, it's always been something that we just didn't really talk about. Um, and maybe some of that is like intentional. Um, but I, like, I think the only thing that I really know about his military career, like I know the, I know he was in Saudi Arabia for a little bit. Um, 
which was, I think from what I understand was pretty grisly. Um, and then he was in Hawaii for a little while. He was, he was stationed over in Hawaii for a little bit and he hated it. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and that was about it. He was just like, okay, well, you're going to work a lot and it's going to suck. Uh, I think I remember him saying something about how he, uh, always loved getting kitchen duty because it meant that he got like the best, like, like the choice pastries or something like whatever they would make pastry. So like, if that gives you any sort of indication <laughs> about how my family communicates, it's like, are you hungry? <laughs> and are you working? <laughs> Good. <laughs> cool. Yeah, so. yeah. 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 Uh, That's yeah. yeah. So what did you think your life was going to look like coming out of high school? Um, even just before you decided to join the military, oh, did you know what you wanted to do? Did you know, did you have any idea of like, maybe, you know, maybe not like you had a five year or 10 year plan, but, but just in general, like I know what I want to be when I grow up. Was there any sense of that of, of direction for that? I, I think that I felt very, Hmm. It always sort of felt like there was an expectation of me to get like get married, have babies, have the family. Mm-hmm. Money will we'll figure out money when we get there. Um, mm-hmm. so I think that there's always been a lot of pressure around relationships in particular. Mm-hmm. So I get very um I think I was always very focused on trying to like that search for, for family or for community or for, uh, for home, um, which I think I talk about a lot probably in my place, just the search for home and for, and for familial community, um, and missing a lot of that or feeling outside of that, um, or grieving the loss of it. Um, I, I think when I was a kid, I always sort of thought that I would be maybe a writer, uh, but probably more like maybe an English teacher or Mm. something like that, probably somewhere in there. Um, for a hot second, I thought maybe I might be a nurse. Um, Mm. when I actually, when I signed up for the Navy, I was going to be a corpsman. So. Um, it's probably going to be hanging out with a lot of Marines and right. <laughs> yeah, uh, doing medical stuff just because, so my, uh, my mom for a good 20 ish years was a uh, volunteer firefighter. So it was my dad. Uh, my mom was EMT paramedic. Like, so that yep. always felt very gotcha. natural to me. Um, just and service oriented, service oriented. Yeah. yeah. I always wanted to help people in some capacity. Yeah. yeah. Had you been writing th- for on your own, like for your own creative outlet throughout high school? Was that a constant mm-hmm. thing? Was it an occasional thing? Wh- what, how big a role did it play in your life? That was always a very constant thing for me. I, um, <laughs> my friends and I, we used to do this, um, God, we were super cool in high school. Um, <laughs> we, we had this thing where, um, God, I can't remember what the site was called like the platform was called but you would set up these like message boards is what they sort of looked like but you would build worlds but we would build worlds together 
and these, um, these big collaborative stories that would take place. And then we would like, we would, uh, advertise like the story idea to other people. And then they would join the site. They would create a character. And then we would like, we would role play like essentially is what it was. Like you would write 1500 words. It's like, this is from this perspective. Um, uh, whether it be like a student in a magic Academy or like a a Harry Potter, like uh, role playing website, but you would pick a character and you would write for that character and you would build uh, story arcs for everybody. And we would get together and be like, okay, like what is the, uh, what's the the plot that we're going to like, what's our, what's our plot for this season sort of thing. It's like, oh, yeah. there's going to be like a magic war. Like we're like yeah. the, the king of the unicorns is, is murdered and his only daughter is like missing the swamp. And like, how is she found? Like, how are the, uh, how is the war like with the hellhounds like put to rest and, uh, and how do all of these like 50 people on this website, like come together to make it happen? Um, it's like literary dungeons and dragons. Yeah, kind of, right? yeah, yeah, exactly. That's crazy. Wow. That's really cool. Play now. <laughs> do you play it now? Still? I do. I'm actually, I'm looking at a bunch of my dungeons and dragons stuff that's right cool. now. <laughs> that makes so many things just synced up for me. I'm like, oh, okay. Got you. There we go. (laughs) Well, no, but, but that's interesting. But what's interesting (laughs) about that is that, but I mean, it is, that's that perfect marriage of personal, real, Mm -hmm. dare I say, adult experience with complete fantasy. And that Mm -hmm. is, I mean, would it, would you be, if I were to describe the work that I've seen of yours as that, would that be appropriate for you? Would you Uh, kind of agree with that? Fantasy, but with adult, but with an adult realism. So the granular details are mm-hmm. adult emotions, the insight and the perspective to capture complicated, nuanced mm-hmm. adult emotions. And I, I shouldn't say adult emotions because some of them are children's emotions, but captured mm-hmm. from a nuanced understanding, let's say, but in a fantastical mm-hmm. environment. I would agree with that. Actually, I think that that's pretty. I think that's fairly spot on. I, I think I might've said this when we spoke uh, last week, but I, I feel like sometimes when you talk to, when you talk to adults, uh, it can be really scary to uh, talk about how we're actually feeling and what our emotions yeah. are and um, our perception of the world around us. And it can be, it can feel like a very vulnerable, scary place to, to be. Um, but if I can put it in a world um, where there are zombies or ghosts, yeah. <laughs> yes. if I can make it sci-fi or fantasy yeah. or whatever, um, I think it gives people more permission to explore those emotions for themselves or to identify with uh, something that they've, that they're not quite sure about just yet. I, I think it just gives permission to feel that. I love, I love that permission to feel. Absolutely. When you have you looked back at that writing that you did in high school, that collaborative writing? Have you ever looked back at it? I have. What do you think? Um, it is just a masterpiece of garbage. <laughs> it's, it's really it's sweet, and it's like, and I was trying really hard, um, and it it reads like like a like fan fiction a little sure, bit, you know, sure. like, but also too, like, I am really proud of that girl because she yeah. was writing a yeah. lot. I was yeah. writing so much. Um, 
and writing sometimes for like five, six different characters. Like I was writing like all kinds of different perspectives and just trying shit. And, you know, just, I, I think that in some ways I was, because you had to respond to somebody in a mm. reasonable amount of time, you had to write it and you had to write it really fast. Um, huh. So I just, I'm really proud of her for a lot of things. The writing, like as far as like the quality of it, like maybe not so great, but I was, I was doing, I was doing all right for where I was like, you know, as 16, 17, 18 year old. Yeah. 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 If you're, if you hadn't um, left the military when you did Mm -hmm. and you'd end up having a career of any length, Mm-hmm. Would you have been writing? Had you considered how that was going to mm-hmm. impact your writing? Was it enough of your life that you were like, hey, wait, how's this going to work with me still writing? Or were you thinking, okay, I'm moving on to a different phase of life and I probably won't be writing for a little mm-hmm. while, if maybe ever again? Writing was always going to be something that I did. Okay. And I'm I'm pretty positive of that. I think so when I was uh when I was training, I was I was writing tons of letters. Like I was writing to, I was writing to everybody. But the funny thing is, is that as soon as I, my first night in SEPS, I was laying in bed and I wrote, um, I think I called it rage, something like that. But it was about, it was about, it was a zombie short. Like it was just a one page, like piece of zombie war. Wow. Um, about like this plague starting. Um, and that was my first night in SEPS. And I was like, no, this is just, this is how it's, this is just for me. This is what I do. Um, but I think in a lot of ways too, uh, writing for me is sort of a form of escapism. Of course. So is it escapism uh, yeah. or is there a therapeutic aspect to it as well? Probably both. I think yeah. both. Yeah. Cause I get to sift through my complicated feelings on things and I get to uh, really sit with and think about other perspectives when I am hurting or like if there's a situation that involves multiple people, then it just, I think it helps give me more perspective. Yeah. What did you do? Maybe not as quickly as I want sometimes. But. Right. Of course. No, totally. But, but that's kind of also the magic of it, right. Is still sorting through things. And even if it's not totally finished in your mind on the page, you can kind of walk yourself to a, in the direction of an answer. Right. Exactly. What did you do when you finally came back to the civilian world after a little hiatus? Mm-hmm. What, what what were you doing then? I almost immediately moved to Arizona uh, with that guy who was trying me to do it, uh, which was a bad choice for a lot of reasons. Um, I I think I was what nineteen twenty. I think I was about to be 20 when I moved down there and made a lot of very questionable choices. And just, I lived really fast and hard and I didn't really like, I think I was hurting a lot and didn't really know how to slow down and be okay. Or even, uh, had, I didn't, I don't know that I really had a desire to like stop long enough to, really consider if I was okay. So I think I spent the next several, like next year, two years, just really 
uh, unsafely, we'll say. I just, yeah, not not as well as I should have, but still writing, still trying things. Just, I think that my focus for a little while was um, just trying to feel anything that wasn't mm. really that wasn't like shameful or mm. uh sad or whatever i just or whatever the negative thing was like i was just really doing anything i could to feel lovable yeah what did that do for your writing did it make your writing did all the angst mm. and all the <laughs> sorting through it did it help the writing or were you finding mm. that you because if you if there were things that weren't being addressed, did you find it limited the writing and there was there was a reality that you were ignoring because mm. you couldn't get to that place? You know, I think that it helps my writing now. Um, uh, I think yeah. I I use it now uh, that I that I have had like sought help and that I am living a lot more safely and uh, in a more healthy way both emotionally and physically and all of these mm. things. Mm. Um, I, uh, it informs my writing more now than I think it did when I was, when I was younger. I, cause that was you know, 10 years ago. <laughs> like, yeah. I, yeah. I didn't have the tools at the time to use it in a productive way. Have you looked at that writing? Have you ever gone back and looked at it? A lot of it's been lost. Um, gotcha. Yeah. I had, yeah, I had this old crummy laptop laptop that had to be, it was literally held together with one of those binder clips. I had to clip it to the side of my laptop so the screen would work. Yeah. Uh, so, um, a lot of it's been lost and that's really okay. Yeah. It's just, yeah. there's some of that that's just not mm-hmm. <laughs> healthy or necessary anymore. <laughs> and I think a lot of those stories that I was trying to tell, I have found a way to tell them better, uh, to do the mm. more justice. So, what, yeah. So what's interesting to me about what you did in high school with the collaborative story is that you, there was a very quick flash to bang. You were putting it right out for the public mm-hmm. because you're inviting people to contribute to it. Right. Yeah. Were you always writing for an audience or was a lot of this writing? Did you go, Nope, this is going to be just for me. It's kind of a de facto diary kind of thing. How did you treat it? How was it? What was the commercialization of your work or lack thereof? Mm, when it so when it was like the collaborative stuff, like well, that. even after that, I mean, because clearly you mm. writing was just part of your DNA. Like you were just mm-hmm. writing regardless. So yeah. were you were you trying to push it out? Was there a thought even in Arizona, like, oh yeah, I'm, this is theoretically for publication somewhere, whether or not mm-hmm. it ever makes it is irrelevant but just that was the thought or was it always did it become something just for you that you just needed to do it whether or not it ever you ever gave it a thought about pushing it out to somebody i think there was a big like i had a a good chunk of time that i was writing for other people like for it to be read and for it to be um collaborative and like online for people to read and, and enjoy. And there was a, a big part of my life that was just that. Ooh, baby. Mm. <laughs> I didn't have enough coffee. Um, no, I never feeling. It's all good. <laughs> Sunday. It's all good. Um, so that there was a big part of 
there was a big push, I think, probably teenage years where it was really more focused on on commercial stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was in I'm trying to think when I was like a really when I was a really young adult, like preteen to like 15 or so, I journaled a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that like was just for me. Um, that was always just for me. Um, and even even now, I think that nowadays I've learned to separate it a little bit better. So I have, uh, I, I carry around notebooks with me, like, and I've got a ton of them. Like I've got a couple up there on my bookshelf that I've just finished, um, that are just that I, that I've kept that have, uh, random writings in them that are just for me that aren't really going to get used anywhere or, uh, really personal, like more, like, journal style entries of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I am able to also write plays or write things right. that I want to be shared and, uh, and shown. Yeah. So I'm able to separate it now before I think it was period, like stretches of time where it was either one or the other. So like, for example, when you wrote rage <clears throat> and mm-hmm. you chose to do it through a zombie story, mm-hmm. were you thinking, that there was, was there an audience in mind for that because you were writing a zombie story or was it just, that's how you needed to process it. You're like, I don't plan on showing anybody this, but (laughs) this is how I want to work through it is by putting it in this world and putting my thoughts and feelings in this world. I think it was probably a little bit of both. Um, I am at, I think at the time I just needed to get it out of my system. I think it's why I started writing it. Um, I just, yeah, I just needed to, uh, produce something like Mm. get something out of out of my guts I guess (laughs) um and onto a piece of paper because I again like I just felt like that was where I could express myself um and I think with that piece in particular I did share it online at one point um and I don't know that I ever really went back and did anything with it I think it was like I wanted to share it, but it was also, it started as personal. Yeah. Do you ever find in your, just your journaling that it takes on a, a kind of a, let's call it a sci-fi <clears throat> uh, veneer or anything <laughs> that you're like, yeah, well, you know, I, I think I could say this better if we were in space. Like, I mean, is there, <laughs> does that happen just in your writing for yourself? It doesn't. I, hmm. when I'm journaling, it is, I'm trying to, they're almost like love letters to myself or like I'm writing letters Mm. to myself. Um, They're not really too fantastical though. I will say when I write, I do tend to write sort of lyrically. So I think that that does come out a little bit when I'm journal, right. When I'm writing or journaling. Um, But beyond that, it's, it's usually pretty straightforward. Um, Mm. Yeah, pretty straightforward, pretty grounded in okay. the material world. <laughs> yep, got you. So we talked a lot about you as a writer. Um, mm-hmm. I want to ask you about you as a reader. Are you okay. a reader? Do you read a lot? What were you influenced by? What do you like reading? Mm-hmm. What have you liked reading? I, I, I will start out by saying I loved reading when I was a kid. It was mm-hmm. one of the few safe houses, I guess that I had, it was like, it was my favorite space to be when I was growing up. And even through high school, like I read 
tons. I've read tons. Um, things like, and it, like looking back, I think I still have them up on my shelf, but like um, A Great and Terrible Beauty and mm. uh, The Two Princesses of Bamar and Ella Enchanted. I loved fairy tales and fantasy and um, and magic. Like I just, I wanted to, um, I really wanted to live in those spaces. <laughs> I was also reading things that were maybe a little uh, beyond where... <laughs> I should have been reading, but I was, I was also reading as a pretty young person stories about, uh, alcoholism. There was one that was like this Mm. like short story about, uh, like, uh, this young man who was an alcoholic and like trying to like go through AA and like just grief, grief and, um, trying to have a relationship like through like while you were an alcohol, it was a whole thing. Like, my mom was like, are you sure you should be reading this? Uh, and I was like, why not? I don't know. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm 13 and I can handle it. <laughs> um, or just, I don't know. I was, I, I feel like I was also reading big stories about big feelings that were maybe a little, <laughs> gotcha. a little uh, mature for me, but I still sought, sought them out. And I wanted to, I, I wanted to read them because I think that even if they weren't like, experiences that I'd necessarily been through. There was like a nugget of like mm-hmm. emotional truth that I still, that still resonated with me. Um, but the magic, um, Oh, I remember the other one. It was, uh, like the hidden ones or something like that. It was this whole series about, um, third, second or third children, um, like in this sort of, uh, what do you call it? Post-apocalyptic, like not apocalyptic, but like this uh, alternate timeline in uh, the States maybe where we had a, like a limit on the number of children that you were allowed to have. And there were <laughs> like, like a one child secret... policy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And right. there were, it was about these secret children who were like finding each other. So um, again, like that neglect, that feeling like hidden or invisible or whatever, it pops up like in the stories yeah. that I found. Um but there was always magic. Nowadays, I have a hard time reading, and Do you? I get I, I get distracted so quickly. I'll yeah. start reading something, and my brain just wanders. <laughs> but I do movies. <laughs> like I, I can watch a movie. I can watch um, I, I in podcasts too. Mm-hmm. Um, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I love uh, The Adventure Zone and uh, Not Another D and D podcast. Lore is stunning. Um, yeah, that's that's more where I get my interesting yeah and it's um do you feel so i want to pick up on something you said before where you said yeah you know a lot of your writing is self-taught so mm-hmm. i think reading is probably the best school for writing that i think a person can do mm-hmm. but did you then have you ever gone and sought out instruction and gone you know i really should do this or that because there might be some tools i'm missing or anything like that has that ever been a need or a desire for it? I, uh, I'm trying to think. If I did, it wasn't when I was a kid. Um, <laughs> I so read a lot, just wrote a lot in general. I think my first like creative writing class was probably, I think it was actually when I was in when I was in college, actually, I okay. took, 
I think it was my senior year too. Like I took a playwriting class. So there was that, but that was, there was, um, so that like technically was sophomore year. So I took a playwriting class, um, but I took a creative writing course when I was a senior in college. And I think that was maybe my first, like, sure, sure. Big, like how you write stories. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and how did that, how did you feel about that? I mean, that's gotta be, I think that's like a small businessman suddenly going to business school. And it's like, Hey motherfucker, (laughs) I've been doing this for real for a while. I know what I'm doing here. Yeah. I know what I, I, well, I know what I'm doing. Also there's, there's a couple of battle scars already. So it's kind of like (laughs) enough with the academics. Like this is what it actually looks like. Was there that or or were you, uh, did you like, yeah. How did it strike you? How did you feel taking the class? Um, I, I think that the only thing that I ever really got defensive about and that I sometimes still, well, no, I, I mean, I, I think I understand it better now. I hate it when people tell me that, Oh God, how do I say this without sounding like an ass? Um, if somebody doesn't think that I am able to do something, it drives me nuts. And I'm like, it, it's that if you ever watched lost like mm-hmm. that john Locke character his like don't tell me what i can't do <laughs> like I, like i will show you and i get like a little petty and like no 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 like let me what show kind you of what feedback were you do. getting yeah what, what kind of feedback were you getting that was like that um like the the worlds you're building are too big like this is too cinematic mm. for this stage this is um or doesn't I don't know I, I like too com- too complex too big um um I think those were the big ones that I was getting <laughs> um, interesting yeah and it's funny too because I find I find directors I find people who really love them and are able to put them on stage and I'm like wasn't too big <laughs> right right <laughs> like, right <laughs> so I I like to I like to write in such a way that it feels like there's a whole universe, like a very like possible, I don't know, where everything feels magical and possible um, and doable. Um, and even though there's magic in the world, like I still want people to look at it, read it and be like, oh no, we could do that. We can make that happen. Right, <laughs> like, right, right, right. Yeah. Um, I also like pushing the boundaries a little bit too. And, <laughs> and just being like, I will find somebody who knows how to make this happen. Watch me. <laughs> like, um, yeah. Do you, do you remember what it was specifically? Was it a piece that I read? Was it, were any of those ones that ever got feedback like that? Oh, was it? Um, let me think. I don't know if I sent you autophobia. That's a monologue. Um, but that one, it's about, it's, it's a monologue that is a person who has been locked inside of a room that is like floor to ceiling mirrors and autophobia is this idea that uh, like a fear of oneself or um and so it's this very existential monologue about hating yourself basically wow <laughs> um wow. yeah and then being a captive in this box where the only thing that you have that you have to look at and that you are probably going to die looking at is yourself. Um, That's fucking, so. that is such a Lindsay Partain trip. <laughs> Holy shit. Like you are the only person I know that would write that. That's fucking incredible. That like, that seriously captures all those elements that are, I find 
disturbing, disturbing and entertaining and worthwhile. That's like the claustrophobia, the isolation, the existentialism. It's all right there. That's fucking hilarious. Um, that's um, okay. So I had a question. Now I forgot. Yeah. Because that, I just got totally caught up in that description. Um, okay. Well, let me ask you this. So now taking mm-hmm. stock of your writing, where have you made the biggest strides? Do you think in your writing you, because you really have been mm-hmm. tilling the soil for a long time. So <laughs> where do you, yeah. I mean, you must be able to look at your work and have a pretty good idea of where you are on the trajectory. I mean, how do you feel mm-hmm. about your writing? Where do you feel you're weak still? What do you feel you've improved the most on? So for I, when I started let me start over. When I went back to college, um, when I tried again and actually stuck with it, I I came back knowing uh, that whatever I decided to do, I was going to have to work really hard to get it. Like mm-hmm. working, especially if I wanted it to be in the theater or be um, something based around writing. Mm-hmm. I was I was gonna have to have a side something to get me through it because you know to nobody's surprise the arts don't really pay yeah right right um, so I I have stuck with that and I I just I work really really hard to make sure that I like that I am set up in a practical way. So that I have the time to also set myself up in a creative way. Mm-hmm. So over mm-hmm. the last couple of years since I started, like I've, I, I keep a submission tracker uh, where it's like, okay, these are all of the places that I've submitted to this year. These are all the places that said no. These are the ones that said yes. These are the, this year I did it so that I, I have on my spreadsheet, like every piece that I, that I've written. And I will mark on it how many times I've submitted that piece in a given year. Um, And I keep track of who says no, who says yes, what those yeses are, if they are, or if it's like something off of the play exchange, if they found it there. Um, And then I see how many times I've submitted in a given year. And and I try to outdo myself a little bit each year. (laughs) So just constantly pushing myself to like, Hey, keep writing, keep submitting the stuff, keep meeting new people. Just like in this business, like nobody's going to knock on your door and just be like, right. Hey, Lindsay Partain. Sure. I dreamed you up. <laughs> I would love to give you money to write plays. <laughs> right. I, right. you know, so I, as I figure as long as I keep, as long as I keep writing and keep taking classes and, you know, meeting people and just like honing my craft as a playwright, then only good things can happen from there. Uh, the only, the worst that's going to happen is somebody is going to say no, you know, mm-hmm. like I, you just kind of have to treat it like a second job in a lot of ways though. And if you don't give yourself the time and the space to do it, it's, it makes it hard to keep going. Cause I feel like sometimes when I was, when I wasn't submitting very much 
I was maybe getting like a yes or two, you know, like not very many, the majority of them are going to be no's. Um, so it, it feels harder, I think, when you're only getting no after no after no. But if you submit, you know, 50 to 100, whatever, a year, you know, you're going to get quite a few more yeses. And it just yeah. makes you want to keep going. Sure, sure. <laughs> so, well, that, that's interesting because I was expecting a technical answer. And oh, really? that's interesting. Well, no, but, it, but it, that's really interesting because you're, you, it seems like that's been where your focus is, is you're treating it like a business, like a job and, mm-hmm. and, you know, disciplining yourself. Do you write every day? Do you make a point of writing every day? Not necessarily. I used to try to do that because I know there are a lot of people who are like, if you're not writing every day, then you're not a real writer. And I don't subscribe to that. I, because it makes me miserable. I, mm-hmm. I find that I write the very best in big chunks. So I mm-hmm. will, um, I'll sit down and I'll write 10 pages of something and then I'll be like, I'm going to go for a walk now. Yep. And then I'll, and, but I'll spend like the next day or two or however long, just like just thinking about my next step, or I'll be, uh, reading articles about ways that it like that it's all connected so it's not like writing necessarily but it's still like i am still my playwright brain is still engaged right um, right. in a lot of ways so yeah i I don't know no 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 no, that does make sense it's funny because i was talking about this with um lilani squire um when i was we were talking about dreams and i guess let me just put it in form of a question do you feel like you, you talked already about at least two of your pieces that came from a dream. Do you mm-hmm. feel like you need to kind of prep your mind by teeing up a dream or teeing up a subject <laughs> matter? And if so, do you pick like a project and you're like, boy, I'm really having a problem with the second mm-hmm. act of this or with the concept of this. And I'm just going to kind of tee up my brain a little bit before I go to sleep mm-hmm. and hope that I stumble onto a dream that's going to solve this problem. Is there, I, I'm, I'm doing a little bit of projecting, but is there, is there anything like that for you that you kind of try to activate your dreams to help with creative problem solving? You know, I've never tried that. I'd be curious to try, uh, yeah. but I, I've never, I guess what it is, I don't try to pressure myself into mm. writing because I feel like mm. as soon as I am, this is, this is me being like an adolescent brain where it's like, if somebody gives you a reading like a book to read for a report. They're like, you have to read this book. It's like, I will never read that book. Yep. yep. I'll never do it. <laughs> but yeah. if I'm interested in it and, and I want to write it and I, I hear something that resonates with me or I um, see like an aesthetic, something like it can be the smallest little things um, that push me into writing gear. Um, I just have to look for them. I have to, I have to just put my, I have to put my, my, my eyes on, I guess. Yeah. In or, or my ears on too. Like I just have to be present and I have to be aware um, of whatever I'm working on at the moment. And if I give it enough time, like if I just give the idea the time of day, Mm -hmm. most of the time it's going to happen, whether I'm awake or asleep or just talking with one of my best friends about something totally like, unrelated like something will make itself appear you know one thing i i really should probably ask 
you went to college. What was your major? Oh, I, when I started, I was going to be, I was an English major. Okay. Um, and then I saw our town and I started taking that playwriting class and switched it to theater. Okay. So you were very much targeted for your <laughs> writing career. Like you weren't, well, I mean, I mean, because yeah. that's a, I mean, that's a pretty major decision with yeah. everything college entails and the costs and the expenses and all that. It's like, oh, yeah. all right, where, where, what are you putting that into when you talk? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's interesting then that's even more interesting than when we talk about where your writing is approved and you're talking about <laughs> the business end of it. Um, do, do you have a struggle with wanting to continue to write or being mm-hmm. able to continue to write? What, what is that like for you? During the, during quarantine and during a lot of 2020, 2021, I, I found myself getting a little pessimistic maybe, or mm. feeling a little bitter, um, or, or just not, not good, I guess. I like yeah. what I was doing Yeah. because I was seeing, I have, I mean, I have so many wonderful playwriting friends who are out of this world talented, um, who were making so much and creating so much art during the pandemic where I was like, I'm not doing any of this. Like, I don't mm. want to write. I don't have, I don't feel like I want to do anything. I want to, I want to go for a walk. <laughs> like I want to, uh. I want to be anywhere, but staring at a screen, uh, or inside my house. I don't want to be in my head right now because that doesn't feel like a great place to be right now. Um, especially Uh because I do tend to write pretty, uh, from the heart in a lot of ways. So I feel those last two years, but I was able to, you know, actually comfortably and safely start leaving my house again. You know, lo and behold, like I want to write again. And I, and I'm finding that a lot of the trouble, um, a lot of the trouble was that I wasn't, I wasn't talking to people or seeing people. I wasn't like engaged with humanity, um, in a way that felt precious to me. Um, and well, that, and, and that might sound really, that might sound kind of shitty. So no, and I don't, I don't think that sounds be, shitty at all. I think no. like, <laughs> it was just, it was a lot harder for me to engage and be engaged with the world around me when everything felt very hopeless. And I didn't see like even art didn't feel possible for me. Uh, and luckily, like, like I said, like, I feel like I've, you know, found my place again and, and the words and the stories have, you know, they find me and, and they always tend to, I mean, yeah, I, I've, yeah. I have a couple of friends too, who took huge breaks in their writing careers. Like I didn't, you know, I wrote this really emotional piece and then it didn't write for three years because I just needed space from it because it was too much or, and that made me feel a lot better. I want to go back to something um, I kind of asked as part of a 20 part question. So, um, <laughs> so I want to, but I, I, I am kind of curious. Mm-hmm. Um, where do you think you're weakest as a writer? Now? Um, yeah. <laughs> Honestly, it's probably, uh, cutting anything out of my place. I am. I love, 
I love writing big monologues and I love, uh, I hate cutting anything from my work. So it's really hard for me to go back and be like, oh, we're going to scrap six pages or this whole act is garbage. Get rid of it. I'm like, no, no, you're, you're killing, you're killing people. You're hurting me. Please stop. Um, so revisions are still where I am actively working to be better. Yeah. Yeah. Where do you find, what do you find is your normal um, workflow? Like, I mean, do normally how many Mm. drafts do you do before the thing is ready? Hmm. Every piece is different. I, Oh God. So full length plays, I would say, God, that's such a hard question. I'm honestly not sure because I think they're all different. There's, Mm. there are some plays that I've written them like first draft and people were like, Oh, we love this. No, like it's Mm. perfect. Like don't change anything. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are others where I had to keep going back to it, you know, several times over and, you know, five, six, seven times and fixing little things so that they would work, you know, for the stage or for wherever. Um, so I think it just kind of depends, honestly. Um, yeah. How do you know when the piece is as done as you can make it? Is it, it because obviously it's at the end of the day, pretty much a blueprint for the actors and the director mm-hmm. to put whatever they want on it. But right. when are you, when are you like, yeah, this is as fully fleshed out as it needs to be. Is it based on feedback? Mm-hmm. Is it based on, your internal bullshit detector? Like what is it that, <laughs> that, you know, gives you the thumbs up and makes you feel confident moving forward? It's, I think it's the second one, actually. Yeah. I, I was talking about this again yesterday. I had a, I had a meeting yesterday with a director who I love. Um, but we were talking about my, my solo show, the way, the way you made me. And uh, he was asking, you know, is this like a final script? Is it done, done? You know, like, does it have anywhere it needs to go? And I was like, I am so sick of working on this play. <laughs> Uh, it is as yeah. done as it is ever going to be. Like if I don't want to touch it, I just need it to be, I need it to be done. And I haven't gotten any feedback to suggest that it isn't. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think I get to a point where I'm like, I have to be done with this. And it just, this is as good as it is going to get. So I don't know if it's like my internal bullshit detector yeah, yeah, yeah. or if it's like just me uh, having spent a lot of my emotional energy on the piece. Um, yeah. But. What feedback means the most to you? What, what allows you, especially when you talk about the difficulties in cutting, mm. what convinces you, what, what usually is your, um, what's your litmus test to determine the validity of feedback? Like mm. how, do, how, yeah, I guess let me leave it there. Yeah. Yeah. What does that look like? That. So usually when I am sussing out feedback, I am looking for a reason why it doesn't connect, I guess. Or like, is it, is the reason you don't like this scene or this person because they're an unlikable person or because it is um, a situation in which you are either uncomfortable or um, have never been in before, like, are like, is that it? Mm. Or is it that this, uh, this particular character isn't being represented in the way that they should be, or, uh, like this person's, uh, journey needs to be 
uh, more fleshed out because like, oh, like from, you know, from A to, to B, I just, I want to see more of like their choices in here mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. like, you know, or yeah. seeing them make mistakes or um, I want to, I want to know why this person is so important to this other person or uh, I, I think it all kind of comes back to that sense of humanity when I get feedback where it's like, Oh, well, I didn't like that because I didn't understand it or something, or it's like when it feels a little um, pointed, I guess, or when it feels confrontational, <laughs> I uh, I sometimes <laughs> shut off a little bit and I'm like, sure. So unless but- I mean, of course, in like barring all like, you know, if I was, like harmful or hurtful or something like those are things I pay attention to, of course. But like, if it's just somebody being kind of stingy and about something they didn't like, then I tend to shut off a little. (laughs) I I mean, who doesn't? I mean, yeah, I think, I think how you you say something goes a long way as far as what, how much you're going to ingest what they're saying. Yeah, absolutely. Um, How many projects do you have going on right now at one time? How many things do you juggle Um, as a writer? So right now I am a, I'm TAing for a class for um, ESPA, so with Crystal Skillman, and that's her the first draft course. So I am working on a new horror play within that class. So that's exciting. Wow! Wow! Um, so that'll be over the next couple of weeks, um, and then maybe working on another project here pretty soon. I'll know in the next week or so if anything comes of it. Um, but it sounds like. Uh, one of my pieces might be going up somewhat locally, so it's hard to say. Um, but and that won't be like me working on it necessarily. It'll just be somebody doing my work, which will sure. be nice. Sure. Um, and then I'm trying to think if there's anything else. I think it's the big projects that I have right now are that class, actually. Yeah. Mm, gotcha. <laughs> I yeah. I like to focus in on on things a little bit. I like to give things the time that they're, that they need to have. Yeah. You, so. you're, you're not a big multitasker. You don't like creatively multitasking. It's, it can, it just gets complicated. It's not that I can't do it. I actually, I'm actually a pretty good multitasker. Um, I think it's more that when a story bites me, I have a hard time letting it go. And I'm like, nope, we're focusing. <laughs> yeah. It's a relationship, right? I mean, you, you can't, yeah. you can't be cheating on one script with another script. It's like, who are you, who are you trying to spend time with? Who is it? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. All these characters over here with their arms yeah. crossed over. Like, um, excuse me. We were supposed to meet. <laughs> Where are you? <laughs> it's true though. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's a, that's a legitimate thing. Yeah. Holy uh, shit, Lindsay. Yeah. Um, you realize we're coming up in almost two hours. I'm like sucking up your oh whole Sunday. All right, listen, you're fucking awesome for doing this. Um, let's do this again. You're let's fucking do this again. Awesome. Thank you. No, no, this is just, uh, this is great. I, I love talking through this. And as I say, like, um, this is one of the perks of the job. I just love being able to actually talk to the people whose work I like and, and go, so why did you do this? And what's the story behind this? And where did this come from? And that just makes me really fucking happy. So um, this is cool. Let's do this again. Mm-hmm. Yes, please. I would love that. That was the savage wonder of Lindsay Partain. I can't wait to see what Lindsay does in the future and we'll have her back on. We'll talk to her again. Uh, again, thanks to Lindsay for being so gracious with her time to come on and chat with us. And I'm sure it will not be the last time. <laughs>
Okay, I have shockingly few shameless plugs to wrap this episode up with. Uh, obviously, we're in the middle of August, so the parlor is on hiatus. We will be resuming the parlor in September. So if you're in the greater Cornwall, New York area, stop on by and see us on a Saturday night starting in September. Uh, you can come by. We'll, in September, we'll be doing admissions, the 2018 Drama Desk winning play by Joshua Harmon. Um, our first not real comedy that we'll be doing at the parlor. Um, it has its comedic moments. Don't get me wrong, but I think it would probably be considered probably just more of a drama. I, I, I want to say dramedy as much as that's kind of an ill-defined word. Also, I feel like the word dramedy kind of phased out with Ally McBeal. <laughs> I don't hear about dramedies anymore. I think it's one of those phrases that it's like, I don't know, Asian fusion. You, I don't know. It just seems dated. It seems like it's a 20 years ago term, but maybe that's just me. I don't know. Anyway, um, it has its comedic moments. It is dramatic. It is uh, provocative, uh, which is always something appealing in theater. And uh, we'll be doing that. We'll be doing stage readings of that. Uh, four of them that will take us up until October 1st. And then we dive into... My nemesis, 39 steps, where I really painted myself into a corner. <laughs> Doing stage readings of 39 steps. I don't know what I was thinking. I think I, I really wanted to, you know, I try to keep it lighthearted. I try to keep doing comedies at the parlor. Um, you start running out of comedies that have minimal casts and are conducive to staged readings. And uh, I think I probably reached a little bit. <laughs> To 39 Steps. For you those of you guys that don't know, 39 Steps is it's a great play. I mean, it won the Tony Award in was it 2008, I believe. Uh, and it's a it's a great comedy. It's four actors playing 150 roles, which uh, you can do as a reading. To do it as a staged reading is a little interesting. Um, and I'm not 100% sure how we're going to do that yet, but we'll figure it out. And it'll be... Uh, it's definitely going to be one you're going to want to come see uh, to see how we pull that off. Or if we pull that off, now nah, we'll pull it off. But it'll be an adventure. Um, so that'll be after admissions. And then we end our season with Good Evening, which is the, uh, to my knowledge, I don't think, I, I've never heard of anybody doing it. Um, Good Evening was uh, the sketch show done by Dudley Moore and Peter Cook, a comedy duo, British comedy duo, in the 70s. And, uh, you know, it's so iconic and it's so personal, you know, you're so used to seeing Dudley Moore and Peter Cook do it. Uh, I don't think anybody else really does it, but when I saw that you could do it, uh, I decided we'll, we'll take a, we'll take a crack at it. And I'm really looking forward to that. We got to find, I've not begun casting on that yet. And, uh, my sense right now is we're going to do a lot of chemistry reads to try to find the exact right two people. There are a lot of great actors I know, but we got to see who works well with who because um, trying to replicate the chemistry of Dudley Moore and Peter Cook is going to be <clears throat> a little challenging, but we'll see. We'll see how that works out. Anyway, that's going to be a lot of fun. I love those pieces in, in that in, in that one, so uh, that's going to mean a lot to me. I'm, I'm really going to enjoy the hell out of that. Anyway, that's what we have going on in the parlor, but obviously that's not right now. That will be starting back up in September. Um, no Death Before Dress. We'll have a couple of other announcements about some other things that we're doing to wrap up 2022. Um, but that's it for right now. 
If you're listening to us on iTunes, obviously we would be delighted if you were to leave us a five-star review. Say whatever you want to us in the review. We'll accept all questions, comments, and snide remarks. But if you could attach it to five stars, that would mean a lot to us because the metrics do matter. Um, subscribe to the Literary Blog. If you want to find out everything that's going on with us, Literary Blog, our Write Loud events on Instagram Live, The Parlor, all the rest of it, go visit us, visit us at vetrep.org. V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org. That is your one-stop shop for any and everything related to Veterans Repertory Theater. We even have links there to the Savage Wonder Festival, so you can see any updates to the festival for 2023 or any uh, postmortems for the festival in 2022. <clears throat> so I think that's all the shameless plugging I have to do for that. Um, obviously, I tend to go on and on and on at the end of these episodes, because if you've listened for this long, maybe you have a heavy object on top of you, or you are really sitting on the edge of your seat just to hear me talk. So I'm assuming you will push on and move on to another episode if you can and want to. So since you're still listening, I will keep talking, but I don't think I have anything else to say. So on that note, let me thank our producer, Michael Neal, who produces us each and every week. And I deeply appreciate his making us sound halfway decent. And I think that's it. We're done. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. On behalf of the Veterans Repertory Theater, thanks for joining us. Come back next time when we dive further into the savage wonder of it all. <laughs>